Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Our guest in this episode is author and historian Matthew D. Biaz, and he joins us in the pen to discuss his latest creation on Pro Football's Best Sideline Bosses, titled Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. Learn what Matthew has to say and how he determined this great field of 50 in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. We have a very interesting program for you tonight. We're going to talk about some of the leaders of the sidelines, some of the greatest in NFL history, as a matter of fact. And we have an expert historian and author that's wrote multiple books on coaches. And one in particular we're going to talk about is the greatest NFL coaches. Uh, his name is Matthew DiBiaz, and he is uh, a very interesting fellow. I'm going to bring him in right now. Matthew DiBiaz, welcome to the Pigpen. It's a, thank you, Darren. It's a great honor to be here. Thank you. Now, Matthew, you have uh, quite a few things going on here. You know, as I was uh, chatting with you uh, prior to us uh, scheduling this, and uh, I've been trying to do some studying up, making sure I, I know a little bit about you. You, you shared your, your book with me, which I greatly appreciate. Great book. And the uh, name of that book, by the way, before we go too far, is Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. So if that doesn't spark some interest in, in your listeners to, to get that book, I don't know what does, but uh, great title. Thank you. Yeah. And basically, uh, this is my, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is my fourth book. Uh, my first book, uh, Bench Bosses, the NHL's Coaching Elite, came out in 2015. My second book, The Art of the Dealers, the NHL's Greatest General Managers, came out in 2017. And my third book, Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, came out in 2019. Uh, what, basically, what I've been is, you know, I've always, I've always loved sports history, and I've always had this motto as a writer, history abhors a vacuum. And with my first three books, uh, each one is groundbreaking. Uh, with my first book, Bench Bosses, the NHL's Coaching League, no one had ever attempted to rate the 50 greatest uh, NHL hockey coaches using an analytical method before. It, it was never done. Uh, my second book, The Art of the Dealers, the NHL's Greatest General Managers, uh, not, well, not just innovative in hockey literature, but sports literature as a whole, especially dealing with the four great North American sports, football, baseball, basketball, and hockey. No one, as far as I could tell, had ever done a book where the 50 best general managers of, of a given sport were actually evaluated. It's never been done. I mean, imagine if someone had did that for baseball, like comparing Branch Rickey versus um, uh, George, the late George Weiss of the Yankees, or heck, 
you know, or, um, you know, or uh, Buzzy Pavese or whomever. I mean, who knows? Maybe I might do that if I, if I live long enough. Maybe I'll do that down the road. But again, it was groundbreaking. And it still sells uh, my book, you know, in Canada and, and like that. And my third book, Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, that too was a groundbreaking work. Uh, no one had ever attempted to rate the greatest Division I-A football coaches using an, a, an analytical method, okay? Beyond, a method based on hard, verifiable numbers, based on winning percentages, uh, how many major bowl games you win, how many minor bowl games you win, and also a plus-minus system where if you had a losing season, you lose some points. Uh, if you lose a major bowl game, you lose uh, some points there. If you lose a minor bowl game, you lose some points there. I mean, it was it's all, all three of my all my pre previous works were working on a plus-minus system. And again, what was so groundbreaking about that is that unlike Bill James or Sean Lehman, who uh, kind of inspired me to go on the, uh, the route uh, the taking, they never calculated negative values. Their rating systems only focused on positive values. But my innovation was if you can quantify success, you can also measure and quantify failure. How many times you finished in last place? How many times you had a losing season? How bad of a losing season? I mean, if your winning percentage was only 48.5, you only lose maybe a point here. If you fail to make the playoffs, you lose you lose like one or two points there. Uh, but if you had like a season where like you're like one in 15, you're going to lose a lot of points. Okay. So it, it, it really balances it out. It, my systems are always symmetrical. It's perfectly counterbalanced. Uh, and, you know, if you can win uh, with my current book, Lords of the Great Iron Two, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches, uh, you actually lose points for losing a championship game. I mean, that was a little innovation there. I mean, for when I was doing the early preliminary researches, I wasn't doing that. But when I was looking at the final figures, no, it wasn't looking right. And I, I was struggling. I was wondering what the heck to do. And then I remember what I did with my third book, you know, Lords of Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, where I deducted points every time you lost a minor bowl game. You, I took away 12 points. And if I lost a major bowl game, you take away 14 points. I thought, why not apply that to the pros? Why not? Okay. Every time you lose the championship game, either the Super Bowl or the pre-Super Bowl, you're a championship game, take away points. In other words, Winning the winning the big one is the ultimate prize. Losing the big one can also be uh, the biggest penalty there too, because uh, it, that literally it separates who were the great champions from those who couldn't win the big one. That's like a bad Bud Grant. He lost four Super Bowls. That's why I don't even have him within the top twenty. If you read my book, there, uh, Tom Landry. Uh, you know, people might be surprised. I don't have him in the top five. You want to know why? He lost three Super Bowls and then. He lost seven NFC Conference Championship games, which means seven times he was one run away of getting in a ticket to the Super Bowl, yet he failed to do that. So that's a lot of unrealized points. So that's like 10 big ones he failed there. So I figured that had to weigh against them. And that's why I don't have Tom Landry in the top, uh, in the top five there. But those people who are in the top five, they won the big ones, and they won more big ones than anybody else. I mean, Belichick, Vince Lombardi, Hallis, hey, they won their big ones. I mean, that's got to count for something. Hey, when it comes down to the, the ultimate test, who, who, carried, who, who succeeded when it comes to the ultimate test? I mean, isn't that the ultimate measurement of greatness? 
Absolutely. I, I yeah. love it. I love, I love the concept. I, yeah. and I've, uh, I've dabbled myself in, uh, and we do a lot with Jersey numbers here in pigskin dispatch, our, our sister website, uh, Jersey dispatch. We, we take the greatest players at each player number. We did it for every, every number in the NFL. We've done it, baseball, hockey, uh, working on basketball right now. And, uh, it's very interesting. We, I use a similar thing. I don't have so much of the negatives. So it's interesting that you did that. So I, I can appreciate what you're doing and it's yeah. uh, really a labor of love, but yeah. before we, before we get too much more into the book, let's, uh, I'd, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you, Matthew, what, what sparked your interest? Uh, you know, you, uh, you love the numbers, you love the sports. How, how does that all work? How did you come about that in your life? Well, okay. I was born and raised in Southern New Jersey. So basically, even though I live in Northeast Philadelphia right now, I'm almost of my life I was living in South Jersey and I'm, I still got the South Jersey in me. If I, Darren, if I ever won the lottery, I'm moving back to South Jersey in a heartbeat. Okay. <laughs> you just can't take the South Jersey out of a guy. Okay. I, I grew up in Jersey and even though I was never the athletic type, I couldn't play it, but guess what? Like at the age of 10, I could recite all the World Series winners from 1903 to 1973. I mean, I, wow. I, as a kid, the, the history thing, the stats, the numbers, who did what, who won what, in what year, it, I, I could retain that stuff. And I could always retain that stuff. I always had the sports trivia. I always had the sports trivia bug in me. I, I could do those things. I could recite who won the bowl games, who, you know, who won the Super Bowl, this, who won uh, the NBA title, that, and, you know, in the NHL and all that. So I always had the sports history bug in me. And, and I started writing when I was at the age of 17, first, I was just writing poetry, song lyrics and stuff like that. Uh, And when I was in grad school and college, I was an op-ed columnist for my student newspaper. So I was I was I was getting the writing bug in me. I was really, you know, punishing and honing my crap Uh, in the 90s. Once in a while, I would send like little contributing op-ed pieces to a local newspaper, not a major one. It was just the Camden Courier Post. But they would publish the stuff. So I was I was getting better at it. I was honing my skills. Uh, and then in the mid 2000s, I started working on this hockey book project. It was supposed to be an oral history of the uh, NHL's original six era from 42 to 65, 67, there were only six teams and all that. And I was interviewing famous hockey players, but somehow that book, it never came off the ground. But what I did was I took some of that interview material and I used it for my, which eventually became my first book, Bench Bosses, the NHL's Coaching Elite. And that's when I developed the concept, you know, of rating and ranking who are the 50 greatest NHL coaches. They're basically filling a void because no one had ever done it before. Here is a chance to fill a vacuum and all that because, you know, I, I like doing that. I like, even if you don't accept my rating system, at least you have a frame of reference to refute me if you feel so moved to refute me. But at least it's there. You know, if you want to challenge me on it, you can you based on you can use what I did before as a frame of reference there. At least it helps if someone ever asks, I mean, who were the 50 greatest NHL coaches? My book is the answer right there. And there, there's your answer. If you if, if you want to get into it, there there it is. And if you think you can build a better boat, go ahead and go for it. But at least you've got my work as a precedent to build upon. I mean, that's the historian to me, because uh, when I'm not writing books, 
I work for the National Archives at Philadelphia. I am a professional archivist, okay? Actually, my job title is archive specialist, but I am a professional historian. Uh, I was always a history buff in school, you know, and high school and all that, college. I mean, those were my college degrees. Uh, my bachelor's and my master's were in history, and I wanted to work in a museum setting, in an archival setting. I never wanted to teach. I didn't have it in me to teach, okay, Darren? Yeah. Well, hey, that's that's a great, great combination when you have the, the history factor going for you and the sports knowledge. I love it. That's that's perfect uh, for somebody that's writing books like you are. And where does the, the, the uh, statistical thing come from? I was going to think maybe you were like a, a mathematician or something or an engineer, you know, seeing all the numbers. No, no. Actually, math was never really my forte, but it's basically how do you read the numbers? It's not so much about crunching numbers. It's reading and interpreting them, creating systems uh, for which you can create, you can rate and evaluate people, comparison and contrast, kind of like what Bill James did, you know, with his wind shares method and another baseball analyst, you know, how do you, how can you use numbers to create, to tell a story and paint a picture? And that's what I do. And that's what my books do. Yeah. Using numbers, you know, uh, I, I, I create systems where, there are no more sectional biases. There's no more subjective opinions. You're using very hard, verifiable numbers that anyone can look up. They're, they're right out there. All you have to do is reach out and grab it. And using my system is, yeah, okay, that's why. Okay, yeah, based on this, now I know why he came up with this evaluation because the numbers say, yep, it matches what he said in the numbers there, okay? There's no more sectional biases. Oh, yeah, you're a Penn State fan. That's why you vote, you, you, you put your thumbs down on this guy here. Oh you, oh, you come from Alabama. No wonder you're a partisan. Uh-uh, no. I, what I, my system do is get rid of the prejudice, get rid of the subjectivity, okay? It's, it's just, it's, it's fair. It's fair and, and impartial there. Okay. I mean, and, um, and it stands on its own there. Uh, you can't argue with those numbers. It's, it's there. It's a matter of record book. I'll tell you what I, when I first opened up the book, I saw the title and you know, we, we talked a little bit and I said, okay, you sent me a copy and I, I opened it up. I said, okay, let me, I'm going to poke some holes in this. And I'll tell you what I had, you know, I didn't have it wrote down, but I had in my mind, you know, I, I know a little bit about football history. And I said, okay, I've got, I've got some names in there. Let's see if it passes my test. I'll tell you what, it was pretty much spot on, especially your, your top five. I, it went pretty much, there, there was a few minor surprises in there, but the, the all in all the, the top 50, I really, I, I'm like going, wow, this is, he did this subjectively analytically and the numbers say pretty much what yeah. You know, the feeling is out there. It, it really supports what a lot of people believe. Now, were there any surprises to you in, in your top 50? Surprises. Um, the fact that Andy Reid rated as high as he did right now, I've got him at a number 11 there. And if he can come up with, okay. I mean, if he had gotten to the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl, who knows? He might, I think he could have cracked the top 10 if he had done so, but uh, but if he can put together a Super Bowl season where he can uh, bag one, I think he's got a very strong chance of cracking the top 10 if he really does well this season here. Uh, the fact that he's that close, knocking on the door of greatness and all that. In terms of, uh, terms of surprises, oh, man, what a surprise for me. Nothing, re nothing really surprised me that – I don't think anything really surprised me that much. Um, 
I think it pretty much conformed to what, what, my, what my thoughts were. I mean, uh, some people might be surprised where I put Vince Lombardi in my pantheon, but I think it's my re- if I explain it in my, cha- my book, chapter on him, it's that he only coached 10 seasons. And if he had gone for 15 or more, like 15 seasons, I think, yeah, I think we can put him even higher than, you know, uh, uh, even higher in the top five. Okay. As it were, but it's just it was that it was just the lack of longevity for Lombardi. Sadly, he was cut short. It's the same with Bill Walsh. You know, Bill Walsh is in the top 10, but people might be surprised that uh, he's not top five. But again, he only coached 10 seasons and he also had two or three losing seasons there. And that's negative drag there. It's like that's that's those that sank him down a little bit, just like it did Tom Landry. I mean, you know, Tom Landry lost all those big ones. There you go. You know. Yeah. Uh, now I the think that my second thing, you know, that I looked at, of course, I'm from Western Pennsylvania. And so I said, okay, how many Steelers coaches are on this list? And yeah. I was surprised about how many made that. I, I wasn't expecting four, like three, I could expect for that fourth one with Buddy Parker making, it. of course, you know, Mike, Mike Tomlin, Chuck, Chuck Noll and Bill Cower on your list, but Buddy Parker making it and probably more for his uh, Detroit and uh, some of the other teams he was on, not so much for the Steelers run, but you yeah. know, I, I was, that's one thing I was surprised as a Western Pennsylvania fan. The thing is though, you know, Parker, this is a strange thing. You know, he's not in the pro football hall of fame, Buddy Parker. He's the only coach who won back-to-back NFL championships in the pre Super Bowl era who is not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And that's a question I ask in that chapter. Why? Though I, I often wonder to myself, there might, I, I taught, there, there might be a potential reason if you read in the chapter, uh, again, uh, you know, here he is in Detroit, yet uh, he, had a, he was the last uh, coach to have an all-white squad. And this is Detroit now, with, with a major African-American population, yet his teams were lily white. And there, he, yeah, he had a problem with African American players. I mean, I kind of discussed that, not in, in any super great depth, but he had a problem. It, it existed, and I often wonder if that might be a residual reason that prevents him from being elected in the Pro Football Hall of Fame today. Considering we're now in a PC era, I'm kind of wondering as such. You know, that's quite. Possible. I don't, I'm just spec- it's speculation, but you kind of wonder as such, but. Hey, he in the fifties, he was he was the second greatest NFL coach after Paul Brown, and the only guy ever to beat Paul Brown twice in championship game competition. Yeah, back to back years at fifty two and fifty three. I mean, hey, I mean, he coached some great players there, and <laughs> and in sixty three, he came so close to getting the Steelers in the NFL championship game. Oh, if they had just won that game a game against the giants in week 14 and 63, but mm. um, yeah. um, I mean, he came close before Chuck. No, he was the best greatest Pittsburgh Steelers coach before the rival Chuck. No. So, Hey, there he goes. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you know, you really do a great job. I mean, you, you, what you, you know, we were talking about how you analyze this and put the statistics and the numbers to use to, to rank them. And you do a beautiful job. You start off the beginning of your book before you even talk uh, about any of the coaches. You use probably 10, 12 pages, I'm guessing, or something in there of explaining your system and 
And w- one of your dilemmas was that you wanted to consider some uh, some of the earlier NFL coaches, you know, the 1920s, 1930s, I think is what you're referencing. Yeah, yeah. Definitely pre-Super Bowl, uh, where yeah. there wasn't as many, you know, numbers, wasn't as many teams, how to be fair to somebody, you know, comparing them to Bill Belichick and Paul Brown to, you know, some, some of the Guy Chamberlain and some of those uh, yeah. uh, coaches back in the day. And I thought that was interesting. Maybe if you could discuss that just a bit. Well, that was a problem, uh, sports fans. For those uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the NFL from 1920 to 1932 did not have a postseason. It was just basically uh, – it was essentially – the champion was determined by who had the best winning percentage at the end of the regular season after on a given date. I mean, sometimes it took a long time before you had uniform scheduling. I mean, some teams would play 17 games. Some teams would only play like 10. It was very irregular, and it was kind of the NFL in those early years from 20 to 32 was kind of like a lot of loose bricks without any real mortar and organization. And uh, and during the Great Depression, a lot of teams had to fall by the wayside. All those small market teams, you know, like the Portsmouth Spartans, the Providence Steamroller, uh, the the Staten Island Stapletons and all that. And basically, by the end of 32, what you had was like, 10 or 11 surviving teams. And then in 1933, the NFL creates the concept of the postseason, a championship game. The league is split into two divisions, five teams each, and the winners of each division will meet in a championship game. And that really led to the growth of the NFL there. And when I was developing my rating system, one challenge in all of my books is that it's, it's got to be fair to all eras. In other words, a uh, coach or a general manager from 1917 has to have the same chance at greatness at, as, a, as a, a coach and general manager have in 2022. You've got to have fairness, okay? You've got to be able to make sure that all coaches or managers involved have an equal chance at greatness. And that's, I think that's what my book does is create that balance. If you look at my top 10, it's a good representation of all the years. And, and I've got, you know, guys who, who coached in that early year from 20 to 32, George Hallis, uh, Curly Lambeau, uh, Guy Chamberlain, uh, people who will ask, who's Guy Chamberlain? Well, guess what? He, uh, he was the greatest NFL coach of the 1920s, according to my, my rating system. He was the first NFL coach to win four championships as a coach. He was a player coach. He was one of the greatest ends in the NFL during the uh, between the pre postseason era of 1920 and 1932. Uh, he was a teammate of George Hallis when the, the Decatur Staley's won the 1921 a- a NFL title. Uh, yeah, and, and then he left. He left the Decatur Staley's and uh, went played for the Canton Bulldogs and then the Cleveland Bulldogs and later the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. And he won. Uh, he, he won. Not only back-to-back titles, he won three straight titles from 22 to 24. Then he won in, you know, won in 1926 with the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. I mean, the guy was a superb end. I mean, uh, he not only is a pass catcher, but this guy could do end arounds. And also that back in those days, they played both ways. That guy was great at blocking field goals and kicks. One of the reasons why the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets won the NFL title in 1926 is in a key get regular season game. He blocked a kick and made sure the opposing team, I forget it was the Pottsville Maroons or was it some, some other team? It was a must-win game. They didn't, they couldn't, they, they couldn't win that game. And that's what clinched it for the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets there. I mean, and I tell his story. I mean, he was a he came out of Nebraska, one of the finest uh, college football players out of the University of Nebraska, still revered there. 
Um, and uh, and he, he was he was a great he was a great legend in the early NFL there, and he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I I saw his bus when I visited Canton last May. There, it was just there there he was there. He was one of the founding fathers in the NFL, along with George Hallis and you know and Curly Lambeau. Yeah, oh, most definitely. I I thought that was superb. That especially like you you said, your top ten represents just about uh, you know every every uh, era of football there there's yeah. at least a couple representatives in there from yeah. you know the twenties to the sixties, the seventies, the fifties yeah. to present day. It's uh it's, it's yeah. great. You know, there's a lot of coaches that I I witnessed and you've witnessed uh, coaching and yeah. many that were long before we, we uh, were a twinkle in our parents' eye. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, so next, you know, one of the next things I looked at when I looked at your list of 50, I said, okay, I'm going to play a little bit devil's advocate here. So I'm, I'm, I'm noticing a trend. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of Super Bowl coaches, Super Bowl winning coaches, you know, so, and I, and I counted it up. I saw, I think you have uh, 35 uh, Super Bowl winning coaches in there. So I said, yeah. okay, hey, maybe that's an automatic bid to Super Bowl. Well, it wasn't. As I went through, I found uh, like four, I think five, five Super Bowl winning coaches that are not on the list. And mm. I think that probably goes into your negativity uh, factor that you have into your equation that yeah. takes them off. You know, and I, I, cause there was like uh, Don McCafferty with the Colts and Super Bowl fives on there. Dick Vermeil was one I was a little bit surprised not on there. Uh, Barry Switzer with the Cowboys in Super Bowl 30, Gary Kubiak in Super Bowl 50, and Doug Peterson with the Eagles in, in 52. I didn't okay, see him. Yeah. I'll explain. Well, McCafferty, uh, one of my criteria is you had to coach a minimum of five, a minimum of five seasons in the AFL. McCafferty didn't make it. He only coached four seasons, if I recall correctly. I think you're right. he, wasn't, he wasn't eligible. Um, now, in the case of uh, Dick uh, Barry Switzer, only coached four seasons, not five. Only four. Hence, he, 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 he's not eligible. Now, uh, people were asking, okay, why why five? Why not four? Uh, I When I was working, do, work, working with my method and tinkering with it, I was doing calculations and I discovered, actually, this is true for all four major North American sports, football, baseball, basketball, and, and, uh, and hockey. You know what the average coaching season is? Five seasons. And... Mm. And, I, and for and two of my categories, which I call the BQ category and the B5 category, the BQ category measures your best five consecutive seasons. Uh, like, you know, when Chuck Noll did that great run from 72 to 80, you know, that's his BQ is within that within that eight year range there. You know, Vince Lombardi winning three straight uh, NFL championships, you know, from 65 to 67 you know, as part of that, too. You know, your best dominant, your most dominant run as a coach there. And in the case of uh, like Dick Vermeil. The thing is, yeah, he won that Super Bowl with the Rams there, and he also had that Super Bowl appearance with the Eagles. But remember, he lost that thing to the Eagles. And also, uh, his first first couple seasons with the Eagles, he had losing seasons. I mean, one year he was like 4-10, and and that serves as negative drag. And then when he came back to coaching with the Chiefs – no, 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 Chiefs, with the Rams – he had some losing seasons. He was rebuilding. It was slow. So that serves as negative drag. Actually, you know what his big mistake was? Quitting after he won that Super Bowl with the Rams. He even said so. He said, I should not have quit. I should have stayed. And guess what? If he had stayed and gotten the same results as his successor, Mike Martz, had gotten, guess what? Dick Vermeil would be in the top 50 
but he didn't do it. And then he came back with the Chiefs and he had some losing seasons with the Chiefs and that drags him down. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it really did. It serves his drag. That's why Dick Vermeil, he says he was always taking on rebuilding projects and that's a risk. That can, you know, those losing seasons where you're rebuilding, you're struck, you're trying to put the pieces back together, that can serve as negative drag. That's why look at Bill Parcells. You know, I had Bill Parcells. Uh, some people are going to be surprised where I rank Bill Parcells on my all time list. You know, I, I don't have him in the top 15, but you want to know why? Because Parcells was always doing rebuilding projects. And even though know, he won two Super Bowls with the Giants, after he won that first Super Bowl, he had a losing season. And I think he, he had a last place finish there. I mean, that really damaged him, and especially in terms of his BQ rating there, his best five consecutive seasons. That uh, really damaged him. Uh, I mean, I had 20 coaches who ranked better in that category, your best five consecutive seasons than Bill Parcells. So that really serves as drag there. And also the thing, another thing about Parcells is that, yeah, he would have a real great super season, but then the following year, there'd be drop-off. He never could sustain it like Lombardi could sustain it or Belichick can sustain it. Or even Andy Reid had better regular season performances than Parcells. At least in the regular season, Andy Reid could always sustain it. His problem was his playoff performances. I mean, for a long time, you know, he lost that Super Bowl with the Eagles and then he, he had that drought where he couldn't get back. And then finally with the Chiefs, he, you know, bang, bang, he had the you know, real great run together. That really helped him out enormously. And that's why he ranks the 11th, you know, ahead of Parcells, according to my calculations there. So it's always that thing. My system is consistency, maintaining excellence, Constantly keeping your teams on a high plane, no peaks and valleys. I mean, my definition of greatness is like Belichick. He's always on that super high plane. Even when he's not winning championships, he's still in the hunt. That's my definition of greatness. Absolutely. I mean, I some of the things you said, I, I love the five-year minimum. I think that's brilliant. I think that, that's a, a great number. Um, and I, I love the way that your your tool has has taken and ranked these people because like, like you said, okay, so Vermeil's not in it, uh, you know, but he he had those peaks and valleys. And you have, yeah. you know, you have coaches that are a little bit more consistent, you know, that, that never won a championship, you know. Mar- Marv Levy, at least in the NFL, Marv Levy, Bud Grant, you know, didn't, didn't win a Super Bowl, didn't win a, a, a championship game, yeah. you know, so, but they're still on that list. And, yeah. you know, and you have guys like Marty uh, Schottenheimer never made it to the big yeah. dance and yeah. he made it, but he was consistent and he took teams and elevated them by his coaching style from, you know, kind of mediocre or disgraceful to, you know, championship caliber just couldn't win the big one. So I, th- I think it's brilliant. And I'm, I'm glad that they, they get recognized that way. I thought your list was excellent. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. You mentioned Marty Schottenheimer. Uh, if he, I don't talk about this in my latest book, Lords of the Great Iron Two. I uh, actually I had a chapter on it, but I had to delete it because it was just making my book too big. I had to reduce it down to a manageable figure. The original manuscript was like 490 pages and I trimmed it down to 420. I had to get rid of the fat. And one of the chapters I got rid of was this chapter called Heartbreak Coaches. I'd just like to tell your listeners out there that I invented a sports term. It hasn't really caught on yet, but I talk about it in my very first book, uh, bench bosses, the NHL's coaching lead. And I talk about it again in my second book, The Art of the Dealers, the NHL's Greatest General Managers. It's the concept called a heartbreak coach. When I was doing research for my very first book, I came across this phenomenon. Coaches who would get their team, I got a lot of playoff appearances with their teams, but guess what? 
They couldn't make it to the Stanley Cup Finals. Forget about winning the championship. You couldn't even get one of the two tickets to the big dance. And all of a sudden, I saw a pattern in this, and I started saying, how many other coaches are like this? And I came up with this standard. The term heartbreak coach is this. To be a heartbreak coach at any of the sports, it could be hockey, it could be basketball, it could be baseball or football, because you can apply to all four sports. If you have a minimum of five playoff appearances without ever reaching the championship finals, whether it be like winning the pennant in baseball or making the Stanley Cup finals in hockey or reaching the NBA finals or the Super Bowl in football, if you have a minimum of five playoff appearances without ever earning a ticket to the big dance, that makes you a heartbreak coach. And that was Marty Schottenheimer's Achilles heel because according to my calculations, he was the greatest heartbreak coach in all of NFL history. I think he was at uh, uh, 11, 11, or, no, 11 or 12, 11 playoff appearances, or was it 13, without ever making it to the Super Bowl there. The next guy, and I talk about him in the book, Chuck Knox, 11 playoff appearances. He never made it to the Super Bowl. And that's why he lost his job with the Rams. He lost his job there with the Buffalo Bills. And that's why he lost his job with the Seattle Seahawks. He couldn't get a ticket to the big dance. I mean, I think it was a Four or five times he was in the conference championship game and he couldn't get it done. And, and there are other NFL coaches. Don't laugh. Tony Dungy was a heartbreak coach until finally he, he made it to the Super Bowl. Uh, um, let's see, who else? Um, 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 uh, Coglin. Uh, Coglin with the Giants. He was a heartbreak coach. He had six playoff appearances until finally in 2007. He made it to the Super Bowl, and he won the Super Bowl. Uh, the thing is, to stop being a heartbreak coach, as long, if you, as long as you get a Super Bowl berth, you're no longer a heartbreak coach. You don't even have to win the Super Bowl. Just get a, a, a Super Bowl berth, and you stop being and you stop being a heartbreak coach there. Uh, John Madden was a heartbreak coach. Yeah, he was the very first heartbreak coach in pro football history. Uh, was it six times? You know, he, he had playoff appearances. He couldn't get it done. And finally, Super Bowl eleven. He, he made it. He finally broke his curse. He was the first one to break his curse there. But, yeah, he was the very first heartbreak coach in, in, in pro football history. And you can apply it to hockey. Uh, like uh, if you read my book, uh, Jacques Martin is the greatest heartbreak coach in NN show history. Twelve playoff appearances. Never made it to the Stanley Cup finals. And – uh, and down the road, when I do my book on the NBA, you're going to be surprised because of all the four major American, North American sports, NBA has more heartbreak coaches than any of the four other sports. And when my bas NBA basketball comes out in uh, October 2026, you'll be able you'll learn who they are. Okay, who's the biggest heartbreak coach in NBA history? And also, when I talk about Major League Baseball, that's gonna that's gonna be my very next book. That's gonna come out April 2026. I will get into who are heartbreak managers because right now there are three. It, it took the, the creation of multiple rounds of playoffs before finally you've got a major league manager with a minimum of five playoff appearances without ever winning a pennant. There are three right now who, who qualify for that. And uh, two of them are active right now. Huh. Uh, Bob Melvin with the San Diego Padres and Buck Showalter with the Mets. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was expecting maybe a Jim Leland in there. 
No, no, no. Remember, he's no. made it to the World Series. Uh, uh, he oh, that's true. That's he true. He won in 97, too, but he's had World Series appearances. So, no, he ain't, he's not a heartbreak. That's true. I'm thinking more from a Pirates standpoint, but you're right. With the, the yeah. Tigers, you're right. He did. Uh, also, he did it with the Marlins. 97, he won with, with the Marlins. Marlins. That's right. Yeah. 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 You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. 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 But yeah. that's a phenomenon. I'm hoping one day he'll catch on and broadcasters will mention it, but it does exist. It is a phenomenon. Like, why certain coaches you know, lose their jobs? Because they can't, they can't even get a ticket to the big dance. That's a factor with some of their firings and all that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that you you recognize you know, some of those yeah. what you call the heartbreak coaches. It's a good yeah. term term for them. Uh, yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to start using that. We'll, we'll we'll get your yeah. get your term uh, working here. So it's yeah. Some of the uh, interaction that you have, uh, not the interaction, the descriptions that you have are just so wonderfully done. You you go through each coach, you know, all 50 of them, you have, you know, a page or two or maybe three on describing their career and, you know, some of their rankings or records and things like that. And some of the reasons why they're ranked where they are and that they're in the top 50. I thought that was, that was excellent. That's a, a great little uh, walk down memory lane to, to remember these guys by. But now, but one thing I found interesting, what you did is you gave us the goodies early. You know, mo- a lot of times you'll, for rankings, it'll be a countdown. You'll start at 50 and work your way back. And you, know, you got to get to the back of the book to find out who's number one. You, you give us the goodies right off the, the bat. And I, I kind of appreciate it. I thought, wow, that's kind of refreshing. It's kind of nice to know who's, on, who's the top dog right out of the gate. Was, was there any, you know, thought into that? Or is that, is that you know, I'm sure you had a reason for that. I, I find it r- really interesting. Oh, I've always done that. If you look at all four of my books, I just started the top and just worked my way down the thing. I mean, some people will do it. They'll do it in reverse. I probably could. I, I, I don't know. It's just dealer's choice. I figure sooner or later, you're going to figure it out anyway. You, 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 you know, some people, uh, some people, they don't want to wait. They want to say, I want to, you know, I want to, I don't want to hear the labor pains. I want to see the baby, you know, and so, yeah. right, yeah, here's the baby. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Christmas morning, you want to open up that big box, not do yeah. your stocking first. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I thought that was great. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your, your podcast, the package uh, tourist show. If you could tell us a little bit about the concept and what, what that's about. Well, I, I never, I mean, I did not do radio when I was in college. I mean, the, I, I don't laugh. My older brother, Chris, he actually did radio in college, but it's not like it translated to me. A dear friend of mine, his name is Ralph Tycho. He does podcasting on the Comfortably Zone Network. We became Facebook friends. He lives out, he lives out on the West Coast. And Ralph, if you're listening, hey, how you doing, man? It's a shout out, man. Love you, man. We became friends. We, 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 we shared some common interests and in all that. We're baseball, baseball history fanatics, you know, sports history and all that. And he, he saw something in me. Don't ask me why. He said, Matt, I want you to do a podcast. He said, I want you to create your own show where you, talk, you just talk about stuff. And I'm in my third season now. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's called The, the Package Tourist. It's on the Anchor Network. If you Google my name, The Package Tourist, or Matthew Devias, you will see the website for my show, okay? And it's in its third season. And I usually I tape Tuesday evenings at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time because, you know, I live on the East Coast there. And I tape it, and then I post, I put it online after 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Anchor Network. It's a half-hour show. And I interview... Most authors, sometimes I've interviewed poets. Uh, I remember a sculptor I interviewed, a guy who worked for C-SPAN, a cameraman who worked for C-SPAN, just 
interesting people, but mostly authors, uh, professional historians. Uh, I talk, I, if they've got a book that just came out, I, talk, I, I interview them about the book. Tell me about your latest release here. Or sometimes we just do career retrospectives. Tell me about your writing career here. And I cover the waterfront. I, I can talk about sports. I can talk about politics. I can talk about history. I've interviewed some Civil War buffs because uh, I'm, I'm a major Civil War history buff. Military history has always been my forte. I've talked to World War II buffs, you know, historians there. A guy named Chris Kolakowski. I mean, he works in a museum out there in Wisconsin. We did a beautiful thing about the anniversary of, a, of the Bataan Death March. And in fact, he and I are going to do a show because I'm president on vacation right now on the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Antietam as soon as I get back from my vacation. I've, I've done Civil War retrospectives. In fact, my last show was a, hundred, a retrospective on the Second Battle of Manassas, a Civil War battle there with a, a Civil War expert, William Connor, who's been on two or three times. You know, I've, I've had some old guests, uh, recurring guests and all that. And, and I just... And for half an hour, I tell, ask him, tell me your story about this book and where can people buy it and all of that. And I give him, and I'm not just dealing with name authors. I will, I will talk to anyone because like myself, you know, I, that's why, Darren, I'm so grateful you're having me on, you know, giving me a chance to promote my work here. You know, uh, I, I will give people, I mean, you don't even have to be conventionally published. If you self-publish, you know, I will give you a platform where you can promote your books and I'll help you out and all of that. Because, hey, I, I'm in that same boat myself. So I like to help out other authors who, you know, are trying to get recognition and all of that. And um, and it's not just sports or politics. I know I, know I have this one uh, lady uh, she, I'm going to talk to her again in December. She writes uh, Christian romance novels and all that. Uh, you know, we just talk about that. She's a very fine guest. Her name is Sharon Connell there. A little plug for her. You know, she writes very good Christian literature if you're into that. Okay. So I, I, I just, I, I reach out to people and I'm in my third season now. I'm amazed I've gone so long. It's so amazing. Excellent. Congratulations. I, I, I know you. how that is. I'm, I'm in my third season too. And I know how, how much work that is. That's, that's great. And yeah. So, so why don't you, uh, as long as we got, you segued us right into this, why don't you go ahead? Let's uh, give the title of your book again and where folks can get it. Okay. My latest release is Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. It is up at Amazon. You can't find it in storage. You must buy it online at Amazon. I, I go uh, Type in my name, Matthew Dibiaz, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, Cat, last name, capital D-I-B-I-A-S-E. Type it in and you'll see all four of my books there. You know, Bench Bosses, the NHL's Coaching Elite, The Art of the Dealers, the NHL's Greatest General Managers, Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, and Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. And in the years to come, I'll be coming out with more books because uh, you'll be seeing my baseball book in April 2026 and my an NBA basketball book in October 2026. And, and if I keep living, I'll, I like to t- take on college basketball. I've got ideas for maybe doing like uh, great the great tennis players. You know, we just saw the departure of Serena Williams there. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in that. I'm working on a system of dealing with the greatest golfers of all time. So if I can live to the 2030s, there's, there will be no lack of future book titles from yours truly here. Well, excellent. We, we appreciate you coming on here. We appreciate you doing this work and, and sharing, you know, the, the, your list of the greatest coaches, uh, folks, make sure you get this. If you are in a commuter, you're driving, can't write down, uh, the information that Matthew just gave us, we have it in the show notes of this podcast. We'll get you linked up to, to right where he is in Amazon. You can find his, his stuff there. Uh, also we'll have it on pigskin dispatch with the accompanying article, uh, with Matthew's, uh, 
discussion here on his book. So Matthew, do you have any social media or anything you want to share before we let you go? I have a Facebook page. I, I have a personal Facebook page. I also have a professional Facebook page, you know, uh, also uh, three Facebook pages dealing with my first three books, you know, my hockey, my two hockey book, my book here. Also, um, I administrate a web page called College Football History and Literature Appreciation Society, where we talk about college football history and college football literature there, any books out on college football and all that. I'm a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association. I'm probably going to join SABRE, the Society of American Baseball Researchers, when I work on my baseball book there. But again, I'm up on Facebook there. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you're if you want to appear on my podcast, reach out to me either on Facebook or on LinkedIn. And I'll, 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 I've got vacancies for next year. I love to have guests on. If you're if you've got a book you want to promote, just or you want to talk about your writing career, reach out to me. I want you on my show, please, please. All right. Well, Matthew DiBiase, author, historian, a great preserver of football history and all sports history. We appreciate you, sir. And we appreciate your time and your story. So thank you for joining us here in the pig pen. Thank you. And God bless you, Darren. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.